Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Uh, As many of you are aware, there's an increasing uh, population with cognitive decline and dementia. And this is very serious. And when you get older, uh, people start to be concerned with it. People with cognitive difficulties or dementia, I mean, they're filling our hospitals. And and they're very difficult to find a follow-up place where they can be taken care of. Because a lot of times the family just can't handle it anymore because they don't even know their family members' names. So when you walk into a room and you forget, why did I come in here? Is that something to be concerned about? You forget somebody's name. Oh, my gosh. Am I beginning to get Alzheimer's? Oh, my gosh. What's happening here? Well, Dr. Butson has some of these answers. Also, another podcast you might want to refer to is Dr. Dale Bredesen, who is actually reversing symptoms of cognitive decline and has some great success with a multi-pronged approach because he believes it's multi-dimensional, multifactorial. So anyway, uh, let's, I'm glad to introduce you, Dr. Andrew Butson. He is on a crusade to empower people with knowledge of whether their memories are normal or not and what their doctor should do to evaluate them and how to use the medications, diet, physical exercises, and strategies to keep memory strong. He's educated at Haverford College and Harvard Medical School. He's currently the Chief of Cognitive and Behavioral Neurology at the Veterans Affair Boston Healthcare System. He's a Director of Education at the Boston University Alzheimer's Disease Center, Professor of Neurology at Boston University School of Medicine, and a lecturer in neurology at the Harvard Medical School. He's co-authored textbooks, Memory Loss, Alzheimer's Disease, and Dementia, a Practical Guide for the Clinicians. These have been translated into many languages, including Spanish, Portuguese, and Japanese. Now he has co-authored and written a highly informative and engaging book for all of us, Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, What is Normal and What is Not, and What to Do About It. This will tell you everything you need to know and how to manage your memory, plus gives you stories to illustrate straight each step. So welcome to the show, Dr. Butson. Uh, thanks very much. A pleasure to be here. Okay. So why don't you tell us, why did you write this book? Yeah, so I, I wrote it for, for two reasons. The, the first is I really wanted to be able to reach as many people as I could to help them understand whether or not the memory problems that they're experiencing are normal or not and, and what to do about them. One of the, uh, I would sort of say a problem in my clinic is that people often come in to see me too late. They come in, you know, after they've had memory problems for several years, and it was because either they simply didn't realize that uh, their memory changes that they were experiencing were not normal, or it was because they actually went to their primary care doctor, but their primary care doctor didn't think things were, uh, were normal. So I really wanted to empower people with the knowledge to figure out themselves 
whether or not their memories were normal or not. The second reason that I wrote the book is that even in my own clinic where I can spend a whole hour with a new patient, there's just not enough time to tell people everything I would like to, such as, you know, more in-depth about why is their memory normal or is it not normal, why I'm prescribing a medication, exactly how the medication works, why I'm recommending exercise and diet, and how do all these different strategies and memory aids work. I really need 10 hours in a clinic visit to go through all these things. So we wrote them all down so that uh, our patients could have all the information that they need. I mean, society has this pejorative view of, oh, you're getting older, oh, you're having aches, you're getting older, oh, you're not remembering things, you're just getting older. And uh, those of us that have studied functional medicine do not believe that that's true, that as you get older, things decline, and that's just the way it is. So it's the same with memory, isn't it? We get a few things here and there and think it's normal. Absolutely. I I do think there's unfortunately a lot of ageism in our society. And, you know, many people from, you know, uh, uh, individuals and even uh, clinicians, they just sort of say, well, Mrs. Jones, you're getting old, so you're losing your memory. That's just what happens. But, you know, it's it's really not necessarily true. I mean, there are some uh, changes that can happen in <clears throat> in normal aging, and we can talk about those if if you want to. But there's other changes that are really uh, not normal, and so it's it's a big part of uh, what I do for a living, and a big part of this book to help people understand, you know, what things are normal with aging, but what things are not. Yeah, I mean, that's an important question because what is normal? I mean, walking into a room and forgetting why you do it. I spoke to a 24-year-old medical student yes, last night, and she's having that problem. But, you know, when we get older and we have that problem, we think, oh, my God, Alzheimer's is upon us. Oh, my gosh, I've only got a few years left. So what is normal? Uh, what yeah. should we be concerned it- yeah, so let me let me talk about that a little bit. So the the first thing I want to do is reassure all your listeners that uh, if you walk into a room and you can't remember why you're there, uh, don't worry, uh, that is uh, normal. So there's nothing to be uh, <clears throat> worried about that. So <clears throat> the way I think about how our memory works is I think about a filing system. And uh, the first part of this filing system is our file clerk, and it's actually a part of the brain. It's your frontal lobes right behind your forehead. And it's the file clerk's job to actually bring information in from the outside world and to put it into the physical memory file cabinet that stores new memories, which is the hippocampus, which is deep in the temporal lobes. And the... Uh, file clerk, as she gets older, um, actually begins to have a a little bit of trouble, even as part of normal aging. And uh, I'm going to give your listeners an analogy that makes it easy to remember uh, what changes occur with normal memory. So the first thing that can happen to our frontal lobe file clerk is she can get a little bit hard of hearing. And because of that, information may need to be repeated a couple of times in order to get into the memory store. The second thing that can happen is she moves a little bit more slowly uh, than she used to. 
And so as part of normal aging, it can take a little bit longer to be able to uh, find the memory that we're looking for. And the last thing that can happen to our older file clerk is that as she is looking through the different memories, trying to find the right one, she doesn't see quite as well as she used to. So she may need a hint or a cue in order to find the memory that she's looking for. But importantly, as part of normal aging, as long as the memory uh, got into the memory store, it should be able to be retrieved, even if it takes a little bit of time or a hint or a cue. So in a nutshell, those are some of the uh, changes that can happen to memory as people get older that are just completely normal and not something to worry about. In your book, you mentioned that we walk into a room and forget why we're walking in or, oh, I can't remember that person's name. And you say it's normal because what happens is we get distracted. There's so many other signals coming into us and we just jump from one to another and the original reason for going into the room or what that person's name was just gets pushed aside due to distraction. And you're saying that's normal. Is that correct? Absolutely. So it's totally normal to have a little bit of a lapse of attention that leads us to, you know, get distracted by something else we see in the room and then not be able to remember why we came in. So that's not something to worry about. That is such a relief. (laughs) Uh, I get distracted so easily. So it's such a relief to hear that. Um. So how would people find out if uh, where they are on the spectrum, if what they're going through is normal or if they should start being concerned and take precautionary sure. steps? Or should everyone take precautionary steps? Right. Well, yeah, so, so I'll, just, uh, I'll just mention, so I, so I talked about the changes in memory that happen with normal uh, aging. And, and let me just uh, follow that up with what would be the, uh, the changes that would not be normal? What are the things that one might uh, need to be uh, concerned about? And uh, if we continue our, that sort of filing system analogy that I mentioned a minute ago, uh, <clears throat> the file cabinet, as I mentioned, is where all our new memories are stored, and that's in a brain structure, again, called the hippocampus. And what happens in Alzheimer's disease is that Alzheimer's damages and ultimately ends up destroying the hippocampus. And the way I think about it is imagine if you pulled open a file drawer and you found there was a big hole in the bottom of the file cabinet. Well, if there's a hole in the bottom of the file cabinet, you could have the best, most efficient file clerk in the world pulling in information from the outside world, putting it into the file cabinet. But what happens, it disappears down the hole, never to be retrieved again. And so when that happens, it's, uh, we call it rapid forgetting, because even when information is repeated, even when uh, one is given a hint or a cue and you wait a little bit of time, one cannot retrieve the information. And rapid forgetting is never normal. So to, to give an example, you know, if uh, you or a loved one are having a little bit of difficulty coming up with 
<clears throat> someone's name or remembering what you did last week, and then somebody uh, reminds you, oh, you remember it was such and such, and we went over here, and then the whole memory comes back to you, oh, that's right, I remember. That would be normal and not something to necessarily worry about. But on the other hand, if uh, you know, somebody reminds you of what you did last week and you have no memory, you know, let's say you went out to lunch with them and you have no memory that you went out to lunch with them last week, that would be concerning because that would suggest there's that rapid forgetting. Another thing that happens with rapid forgetting is that people will often uh, repeat the same question again and again and again or tell the same story to the same people over and over again. And that, again, could be uh, concerning. Absolutely. Now, the hippocampus, isn't that one of the major players in Alzheimer's? Isn't it one of the first things to be affected? You can look on an MRI scan and see that it's uh, getting smaller. Isn't that one of the first things to be challenged in this disease? Yes, that, that's absolutely uh, true, that the hippocampus is the uh, usually the first brain structure that is affected uh, by uh, Alzheimer's disease. And I like how you pointed out that uh, you can even see it shrink on an MRI scan in Alzheimer's. And in fact, some of the, the new research uh, staging criteria for Alzheimer's, uh, part of the criteria is that you look at the MRI scan and you see uh, the shrinkage. So we do think that that is an important uh, component. So and, and another example of us being distracted, we're tooling down the freeway and then we miss our stop because we're distracted, so that's normal. Or if we see a movie, we have trouble remembering the name of the movie or parts of the plot next week. Would that, those be normal? Yeah, so uh, the uh, remembering the name of the movie would definitely be uh, normal. And uh, remembering the names of, uh, of people or places or movies or restaurants, um, those uh, are something that becomes increasingly more difficult as we get older, uh, and that's something that we don't consider something to worry about. Uh, when it comes to remembering uh, words or names, uh, when it's common, ordinary words like table, chair, window, uh, when those words are hard to come by, that is when there's concern. Now, in terms of remembering uh, parts of the plot, uh, some of that really depends on how much we paid attention to the movie in the first place. Uh, I would say if we really um, remembered uh, the movie well and we talked about it with a friend, let's say the, uh, the night after we saw it, we should be able to remember you know, the basics of the plot the following, uh, the following week. But, you know, if it's a movie we didn't particularly care for, we were perhaps, again, distracted while we were uh, watching the movie, then it might not be a big deal if you can't remember some parts of the plot. What about if you, don't, you, know, you go to a store and you don't get all your items unless you write them down? Yeah, so, that, so that's another one that can be uh, uh, totally normal. 
Um, there are, you know, it's, it's hard to remember, you know, a big uh, grocery list uh, full of items. Of course, it depends, like, how many items you're going to do. Uh, I will say that uh, one of the things that we worked hard on in the book is to give people strategies. You know, if you want to remember a shopping list in your head, um, believe it or not, you can actually do it. Um, the, my own favorite technique is to use the technique that the ancient Greeks uh, uh, developed uh, over 2,000 years ago, where they would imagine themselves walking through their house and they would put essentially a grocery item uh, in each room of their house. And if they ran out of rooms, then they would start to put a grocery item in each part of each room. And when you make a visual image like that, it's much easier to remember. And if you make the image a little bit silly or a little bit outrageous, um, it actually makes it even easier uh, to remember. So there's all sorts of different strategies that people can use to remember uh, their grocery items. But the bottom line, to answer your question, is if you go to the grocery store and you can't remember all the items off the top of your head, uh, I don't think that's a, a problem. And that's, of course, the reason that people make grocery lists, is so that they don't have to remember it all in their head. And what if you spend so much time looking for your keys, your cell phone, your wallet, glasses, uh, is that a concern? Or is that due yeah. to distraction? Yeah. So that's a, that's a really good uh, example of something that it's really dependent from one person to another. And what I mean by that is if you're somebody that, you know, every morning, you know, you get up, you spend 5, 10, 15 minutes hunting around the house for these items, and now you're getting a little bit older, and you're still spending 5, 10, 15 minutes hunting around for these items, well, you know, that's probably normal for you and not something to worry about. But if you are someone who was always very organized, always knew where everything was, never had to hunt around for things, and now you're spending 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes, maybe a whole hour hunting around the house looking for these things. Maybe you had to buy a new cell phone because it never turned up. Maybe you had to cancel the credit cards because you never could find that wallet. Well, that would be concerning. So the, the point I'd like to make here is that something like, you know, spending time hunting around for keys, glasses, cell phone, wallet, um, that might be normal for you, but it might not be. And it, it really, it all depends on, on how things were in the past. So whether there's a change in your memory is one important uh, factor. Yeah, one of the things, as I recall, in disease Alzheimer's is if you've got a large cognitive reserve, meaning you start out smart, you could be declining pretty quickly, and it might take a lot longer before people notice it. You might, you know, might be going very quickly to below average, and you know, uh, they might not be. You, know, you still appear normal, but you can be declining pretty quickly. So, yeah, that's ab- one factor to consider. Absolutely right. So, you know, if I'm evaluating, you know, say a college professor, you know, someone who's a very bright uh, individual. You know, I would expect that their memory is going to start off actually considerably above average. And 
that individual might still score perfectly on uh, the common screening tests that we use in our, our doctor's offices, such as the mini mental state examination or the Montreal cognitive assessment, they might score perfectly on those tests, but still, just like you said, have declined actually a, a considerable amount. And so it's times like that that, you know, I really will uh, put a lot of stock in talking with the individual, you know, do you feel that your memory has declined even though you're scoring normally on these tests? And if they uh, believe that they've shown, uh, they've experienced a decline, then uh, that would be a time to pull out uh, formal neuropsychological testing, which would be uh, generally performed by a neuropsychologist. And uh, that can be helpful for uh, getting an accurate diagnosis in someone who has a lot of that cognitive reserve. What about if you have trouble finding your car in that doggone parking lot? Yeah. So so that is something that I think uh, anyone will have trouble with if you are not um, paying attention. And um, uh, it's something that, in fact... Uh, we have strategies for in our book as well. Uh, my favorite strategy, again, there's a lot of different strategies you can use for these things, but my favorite strategy is to, you know, let's say it's a big parking lot and there's sort of area numbers and row numbers. Let's say it's like um, C2, then I imagine a animal associated with the letter and the number of the animal associated with the number of the row. So for C2, I would imagine two cats uh, walking on my car. And I don't really like cats walking on my car, but the fact that I don't like that uh, actually makes it easier for me to remember. So I imagine like one prowling on the hood and one prowling on the trunk. Uh, For A, I like to use alligators. And I imagine alligators on my car. And for, uh, for B, I use bears. And you can imagine any animals or anything you want, and you just have the number of them, uh, the row number, and it makes it, it easy to remember. So what if you find yourself looking at your calendar many times a day so to remember your schedule? I guess that's relative depending where the pers- how the person's always been and how distra- many distracting things they come across. You've got it. It totally depends on whether there's somebody who could always just glance at their calendar in the morning and remember it the whole day or or whether there's someone who always, you know, needs to peek at their calendar to see what they're doing in the next uh, in the next hour. And uh, it also, of course, depends on how complicated one's calendar is. You know, if you're only doing one or two things a day, uh, most people should be able to remember that. But if you're doing five or six or seven things in a day, well, then it, I think it's only normal to, uh, to need to look at the, the calendar for some help. Okay, so now that we've got the general scheme of whether we should worry or not, um, why should people want to get their memory evaluated and to find out where they are in the spectrum? Yeah. So <clears throat> there are a couple important reasons. The, the first is that uh, it may turn out that their memory is normal. 
And for that individual, they might have been worrying and stressing and losing sleep over the fact that they were concerned that they might be developing Alzheimer's disease, and we can reassure them that, uh, lo and behold, their memory is normal. Uh, Another reason is there are real things that cause real memory loss that are not Alzheimer's disease that may be totally treatable, particularly if they're caught early. So thyroid disorders are a common cause of memory loss, either too high or too low uh, thyroid hormone that can be adjusted. Uh, Vitamin B12 deficiency is one vitamin that can cause uh, memory loss. And it can cause permanent dysfunction uh, if it's not uh, treated in a timely manner. So we want to make sure people get evaluated so they can treat problems like that. There's also a number of different chronic infections, including Lyme disease, that can cause memory problems and other tick-borne illnesses. So there's a lot of different uh, disorders, uh, number one, that are not Alzheimer's disease that can be um, uh, treated effectively and essentially cure people of memory problems. And then there's also uh, uh, memory problems caused by things like normal pressure hydrocephalus, which is something that is not common but is a, a treatable cause of memory loss. And again, the earlier it is discovered and appropriately treated, uh, the more one can halt the deterioration of the memory. The other reason that I think it's so important for people to get evaluated is, let's say it does turn out to be Alzheimer's disease. Well, the fact of the matter is we have good medications that are FDA-approved to treat the memory loss in Alzheimer's disease. And it turns out that the earlier that those medications are prescribed, the better that they work. And the very simple reason as to why that's the case is that there are more neurons, more brain cells that are still living that the medication can work on. So we always want people to get evaluated sooner rather than later. And the last thing I'll say on this point is that, believe it or not, the majority of my patients come away feeling better after they see me, even when I give them a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Because people know that their memories are deteriorating and they just don't understand why. And people are often pleased that at least, you know, somebody understands what's going on. Now they understand what's going on. They know there's things that they uh, can do about it. And now it's not like a big unknown fear that's like sitting out there. Now it's something that they can deal with and take medications for, just like they would with any other sort of disease. Like if you have diabetes, well, you got diabetes, you need to take medicine for it and get on with your life. Well, how successful are these medications? Because my recollection is they can delay the onset of the serious diseases by, I don't know, a period of time, a year or so, which is important. As you get older, it's nice to put it off as long as you can. But how successful are these medications? I understand in the later stages they are much help, perhaps for the reason you just stated, there aren't as many neurons left to help. So how successful have these medications been? 
Yeah, no, it, it's a good it's a good question, and I'll I'll start by saying that you your recollection of them is is uh, quite accurate. I'll just provide a few more uh, details. So, the way I think about how these medications work is they can turn the clock back on uh, people's memory loss, and what I mean by that is when someone comes into my office and I uh, make a diagnosis and I start them on one of these uh, medications. So these are um, medications like uh, Dinepazil, whose brand name is uh, Aricept and uh, similar types of medicines. Uh, What uh, I can do is I can make their memory like it was six months ago or even a full year ago. And so the way I describe it to uh, my uh, patients and families is I can sort of turn the clock back on their memory problems by 6 to 12 months. Uh, I unfortunately cannot stop the clock from ticking down. So um, people's memory will still decline over time. In fact, it declines at the same slope. But the fact of the matter is they're always going to be 6 to 12 months better off being on that medication versus being off that medication. And if they stop at a later stage, what happens is one actually plummets 6 to 12 months worth of memory function in 1 to 2 weeks. So as long as the person had a good initial response to these types of medicines, we generally recommend that they stay on it pretty much uh, uh, forever, pretty much uh, uh, for their life, until, at least until the very end. And in terms of uh, what do we do in the later stages, so it turns out there, this was a study. There was a, a British study that was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2012 that um, looked at patients with moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease who were already taking uh, Dinepazil. And in a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled fashion, they either kept them on the Dinepazil or they took it off and replaced the pill with a placebo. And what they found is that those people who stayed on the Dinepazil did better. And they actually did so much better. Not only was it statistically significant, but the investigators said it was also a clinically important difference. So we do recommend that everybody get started on these medications and that they pretty much continue them uh, throughout the rest of their lives. That's a pretty important tool to keep in our toolbox. Absolutely. I think it it really is. And, you know, I guess the the last thing I'll just say on this point is, um, you know, if I can, if somebody comes in and they see me early and I'm able to turn the clock back on their memory problems for a year, you know, it's like, how good is that? Is it really good? Is it not so good? You know, it really depends on sort of how you, how you view things. Like, is the glass half full or half empty? And I confess, I'm a half full kind of guy. And so, you know, I think if somebody, you know, has a whole nother year to uh, develop good memories of, you know, their, their grandchildren, if they have another year where they're uh, capable and competent and can go on another trip uh, to see places they've always wanted to see uh, in the world, 
you know, if they now have another year that they can work on writing their memoirs, or even they just have another year to keep living at home independently. Uh, To me, those are important things. That's important. Well, a work I'm also impressed with is Dr. Dale Bredesen's, who's looking at Alzheimer's as like multifactorial disease with several subtypes. And he's actually, he has the analogy is 38 holes in the roof. And you just take the biggest things that are going wrong. For example, he's got Alzheimer's subtypes. One is toxins. One is metabolic, you know, issues of diabetes. For example, uh, some people used to call Alzheimer's diabetes three. And then he also has a form where I guess the anabolic process building up is less than the catabolic or destroying. And he, so he takes the biggest contributors to that. It might be metabolic, might be toxins. And looking at this multifactorial approach works on those. And he's actually reverse memory loss. But he also found if they stop the program within six months, they go right back to where they were. So that's, I think, combining that with medication and looking at Dr. Bredesen's uh, approach it I mean when it gets to be my time that's what I plan to do sounds good to me okay so how can we tell the difference you know interesting when I talk to Alzheimer's patients like when they get down to a mini mental status of low 20s or something I find that they can talk and cover over and you really don't notice it because they're very good at getting the words out even though you didn't get the answer so I think at some level they're trying really hard to hide it. So it might be a little hard for other people to know. But how can we distinguish changes in memories due to normal aging and those due to the dreaded disease of Alzheimer's? Right. So, um, you know, the the first thing I'd just like to comment on is that I, I, I think you're right that a lot of people do try to hide their memory problems. And some of it, I think, is because people, like you're saying, uh, I think people are just so uh, afraid of uh, Alzheimer's disease. You know, I think that the term Alzheimer's, you know, the A word, it's sort of like the way that we used to view cancer like 20, 30 years ago. It's sort of like, you know, you didn't want to tell people, you know, that they had cancer and, um, you know, people were afraid of a diagnosis of cancer. And I think that that's the way Alzheimer's is today. But I would say, you know, we're really working hard to try to um, de-stigmatize uh, uh, the word. And again, let people know that there are things that can actually uh, help the disease, uh, whether it's the standard uh, FDA-approved uh, medications or, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of new medications that are being developed in clinical trials. So there's actually, uh, uh, I think the most exciting uh, clinical trials are there's new antibodies that are directed against either the amyloid plaques or the neurofibrillary tangles that can actually go in and remove those uh, from the brain. And there's a lot of different companies that are working on these approaches, and you know, we're all very hopeful that, um, that they're going to be uh, successful. So hopefully in the future, uh, people won't be trying to hide their memory problems. They'll you know, bring them to their doctor's attention so that the doctor can, uh, can figure out if something's wrong or not. 
So how can we distinguish the changes in memory due to normal aging and Alzheimer's? Yeah. So, you know, the the big uh, thing that I I think is most important uh, from the history that we get is uh, going back to what I was talking about before is whether or not there's rapid forgetting. So uh, when we hear about uh, problems such as uh, you know, that it takes a little bit of uh, repetition of the information in order to get it into our memory stores, that's okay. If it takes a little bit of time to retrieve the information, that's okay too. And if we need a hint or a cue to help us retrieve that memory, that's also fine. But when there's signs of rapid forgetting, that's not normal. And so with rapid forgetting, uh, that would include situations where uh, even when someone's reminded about the dinner that they had yesterday or last week uh, with friends, they have no recollection of that dinner when they're repeating the same questions again and again and again and again. I had one uh, spouse uh, tell me that her husband asked her where they were going 16 times on a two-hour trip. You know, and that would be an example of this sort of rapid uh, forgetting that would not be uh, normal. I recall reading somewhere, and I could be totally wrong, that previous attempts to uh, attack the amyloid plaques, neurofibratory tangles and uh, amyloid plaques are some of the key markers that one looks for in Alzheimer's disease, and, and so those are involved in the pathology, but I remember reading somewhere that attacking the amyloid plaques has not been successful because they might actually serve a positive purpose. Do I have that right or did I yes. mix it up? Yeah, no, you, you, you do have that right. And in fact, um, so there's been a number of different uh, compounds, uh, different antibodies that have worked towards removing the uh, plaques. And uh, I'll tell you uh, the standard view on why they failed, and then I'll tell you the new view on why they failed. So the standard view is that um, we just haven't started the drugs early enough. The standard view suggests that once that beta amyloid begins to be deposited, it starts to damage brain cells, the brain cells form these tau tangles, and the tangles start to spread throughout the brain. And once the tangles are spreading, even if you removed all the amyloid plaques, it wouldn't stop the disease. It's sort of like the horse is out of the barn. It doesn't help if you close the barn door because the horse is already out. Uh, so that's the standard view. And in fact, there are studies now looking at trying to treat people even before they have developed any symptoms to try to catch that Alzheimer's disease so early that you can prevent the tangle formation and then you'll prevent the memory loss. So that's the standard view. The standard view is we just haven't started early enough. And uh, we do have studies that will answer uh, that question, whether that's the problem or not, uh, in the next couple of years. But the new thinking on this is that 
we may now, uh, after uh, over 100 years since uh, Alois Alzheimer's uh, wrote his first paper, we may finally understand what the normal function of beta amyloid is. And this is a research that's by uh, Dr. Rudy Tanzi at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and others uh, that have uh, done work that suggests that the normal function of beta amyloid may be to fight infections. So it may be that uh, amyloid is part of the brain's immune system. And so the amyloid plaques are forming in the uh, process of trying to defend the brain. And so you can sort of think about Alzheimer's disease as sort of like a, uh, uh, almost like an autoimmune disease. It's like the immune system has gone overboard. And, uh, you know, uh, again, sort of removing the uh, amyloid isn't necessarily going to cure uh, the problem. If it turns out that the reason the amyloid was there because there was a virus in the brain, and there are uh, studies, some of them uh, from a number of years ago, some of them just recently, that suggest that uh, people with Alzheimer's disease are more likely to have had an infection with herpes simplex virus. And so that may be one um, thing that uh, essentially can start the cascade that causes Alzheimer's. And it may explain why there is not a very high concordance in identical twins, where one twin can develop full-blown Alzheimer's disease at a certain age, and the other twin at the same age has no signs of it uh, whatsoever. Uh, Again, there may be uh, an uh, immune-mediated trigger. So those are uh, uh, two different reasons as to why these anti-amyloid drugs uh, may not be uh, effective. But you're, you're totally right that whether it's for the first reason or the second reason, no study to date has shown that uh, removing the amyloid plaques from the brain can stop the dementia that comes with Alzheimer's. The last thing I'll just note is that um, uh, the Tangle drugs uh, are just being evaluated, and we all are very hopeful in the field that, uh, that removing the Tangles will actually stop the disease. And you'll have to have me back on the show in a couple of years to, uh, to give you the, the answer on that one. Looking forward to that. Another question I have is like uh, the role of statins because cholesterol is so important. It's in, it's for all our sexual hormones. It's in the wall of the cells. And when you've got something, some of the statins cross the brain barrier. And when they're lowering cholesterol in the brain, I start to worry. They also lower CoQ10, which can explain the muscle aches, adiponectin, which can explain the connection to diabetes. And I've read somewhere that they also affect the myelin, which is a, a protective coating of the nerve which could certainly affect the brain. So how does do, do statins uh, play a role? Do they help yeah. in this progression or do they harm? Yeah, it's a very good, good question. So the, the first thing I will say is for all the reasons that you've just said, you know, we need to have some normal cholesterol, normal lipids, normal oils, 
um, in our body and in our brain. And if you don't have enough, you can't make myelin, uh, which uh, uh, you know covers the uh, the brain cells and helps with their conduction. Uh, and so, you know, we certainly don't want anybody to have their uh, their cholesterol uh, being too low. Um, uh, there was uh, some thinking that we really can uh, might be able to help <clears throat> uh, reduce Alzheimer's disease by using statin drugs. And so there was a very carefully done large study to see if using statin medication could help to uh, reduce memory loss. And what the study showed very clearly is it did not reduce memory loss, but neither did it worsen memory loss. So uh, all of us in the the memory field, we we don't believe that statins impact memory one way or another. We don't think they make memory worse, nor do we think that they make memory better. So we think one should basically use them as one normally would if one has high cholesterol, particularly the bad uh, forms of cholesterol, uh, and uh, don't treat someone's brain with the statins one way or another, just, you know, treat their cholesterol uh, to try and help their heart disease. Now, did they separate out the statins that cross the blood-brain barrier versus those that do not in those studies? No, it's, it, it's a good question. So the, uh, the study was done with simvastatin, and, and uh, I don't know of any large-scale uh, studies that were done with other statins. Okay. Um, what about Prevagen? Does that help? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that because it's something that almost all my patients uh, ask me about. So uh, Prevagen uh, is an over-the-counter supplement that uh, many uh, people try. And uh, the best thing that I can say about Prevagen, the best thing, is that we do not believe it's harmful. There is just simply no evidence whatsoever that it's helpful. So I do recommend that people save their money and not bother with Prevagen. Okay. Now, I mean, uh, a lot of people say that diet's important and physical exercise is important, especially when you have some exertion mixed in with it, and sleep are very important for general health and memory. Can you comment on these? Yes, absolutely. So th- there's no doubt that uh, aerobic exercise has absolutely the best evidence for uh, helping to protect against uh, Alzheimer's disease. There was one study that came out in uh, approximately uh, the last uh, year that showed that individuals who began engaging in strenuous aerobic exercise in their 40s were actually able to delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease by 11 years from age 79 to 90 when you compared the average of when individuals in each cohort uh, developed uh, Alzheimer's disease. So exercise is really uh, important. And I'll just mention uh, just a, a few of the, uh, the benefits. So exercise can, of course, um, help with cardiovascular health and reduce one's risk of strokes. And we know that that is uh, very important 
for uh, brain health and preventing uh, dementia, including dementia from Alzheimer's. Uh, we know that uh, exercise is actually a natural antidepressant and uh, people can feel better and depression is one cause of uh, memory loss. Uh, turns out exercise also improves sleep and sleep is critically important for uh, memory. It, it, uh, there's two main reasons that I'll mention. The first is uh, the obvious one, which is that if one is tired and uh, uh, because uh, they didn't get a good sleep last night, it's hard to pay attention. And as we've already spoken about in this program, if you can't pay attention well, then you're not going to be able to remember things. The second reason is that we've spoken about the hippocampus as the part in the brain where all the recent memories are formed and are stored. But it turns out there's other places in the brain where the older memories are stored. And the transfer process from the recent memory file cabinet in the hippocampus to the older memory file cabinet elsewhere in the brain takes place while we are sleeping. And if we don't get good sleep, we will not be able to hold on to our memories for a lifetime. But the, the most exciting thing that I want to tell all your listeners about uh, regarding exercise is that we now know that exercise, uh, particularly aerobic exercise, releases growth factors from the brain. That yeah, BDNF, for example. That's right, BDNF. And it actually helps to grow new brain cells. And what's so amazing is that even in healthy older adults, the increase in the BDNF and the growth of the brain cells is so large that in as short a time as six months, you can actually measure the increase in the size of the hippocampus on an MRI scan. And this increase in the hippocampal volume uh, was directly proportional to the increase in physical fitness that the individuals experienced. It was proportional to the amount of BDNF that was released, and it was proportional to the amount their memory improved in day-to-day life. So people often ask me, you know, Dr. Budson, is there a magic cure out there uh, for memory problems? And I tell them, yes, there is. Exercise is really the closest thing that we have to a magic bullet for, um, uh, for memory problems. The last thing uh, I just want to say about uh, memory problems or, or exercise, excuse me, is uh, I do want all your, your listeners to just simply check with their doctor if they haven't already before they embark on a new exercise program to just make sure that their heart and their lungs and their bones and their joints are ready for whatever increase in exercise they're going to do. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Um, now, I, I want to get in touch on some of the other types oh, of right. memory loss, but before I do uh, we've only got five minutes left unfortunately uh, you mentioned depression and some people I think say depression is a risk for Alzheimer's disease but other people believe that depression is a signal that something is going wrong with your brain so I think depression is something that needs to be addressed in this picture as well yeah so, no I, I I totally agree and 
in my own experience, uh, I think if someone has never had depression in their life and now uh, they're showing some memory loss and they're also feeling sad or anxious about it, uh, I, I do worry that it's the memory loss that's making them feel sad or anxious. And my oh, general we are recommendation... very close to the end, so I certainly yeah. want to touch upon some other issues causes of dementia and memory loss. For example, there's multi-infarct dementia or vascular dementia, and that you notice a stepwise decline. You'll be fine, then you lose something, then you might lose the ability to recognize faces, and that is like what Margaret Thatcher had, and and that's one of the symbols there. Um, Right. Then like frontal temporal dementia, which will be the frontal lobes, which was the clerk that he was talking about, that, you know, you might lose your ability to control your behavior and say some very unpleasant things. And there's very right. scans to diagnose these. And then you've got dementia with Lewy bodies, which is what uh, the, the actor in Marin had, forget his name. Oh, maybe I've got a problem. So you want to touch a little bit upon these. Uh, we've got four minutes left and then say anything you'd like. Also, before the end, I'd like to mention his website. It's Andrew Butson, B-U-D-S-O-N-M-D.com. Okay, the remaining four minutes are yours. Use them as you like. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, so uh, I think you might be thinking of Robin Williams, who had dementia. I I guess Uh, I need my memory checked. (laughs) Yeah, who had uh, uh, dementia with uh, Lewy bodies. Uh, And dementia with Lewy bodies uh, typically has uh, Parkinsonism, but then it also has some unusual symptoms. People can have visual hallucinations of people or animals, Early on, and that could be one of the first signs, can it be? It absolutely can. Sometimes the visual hallucinations appear before there's any Parkinson symptoms, and people might worry that they're going crazy because early on they can tell that these are hallucinations. And my experience is people don't necessarily tell their doctors about these symptoms because they're afraid that people will think they're crazy. Uh, but I want to reassure your listeners out there, if, if you or your loved one is experiencing this, it's a disease and it can be uh, treated. The other unusual symptom that can occur with dementia with Lewy bodies is that people can act out their dreams while they are sleeping. Normally, when we dream, we don't move, and that's why we don't act out our dreams. But in dementia with Lewy bodies, that uh, 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 people actually often do act out their dreams. So those are things to be uh, aware of. Uh, frontotemporal uh, dementia is uh, just like you said, that people have trouble with behavior. And uh, spouses often think that their loved one is acting like a jerk. All of a sudden, they become self-centered. They uh, don't care about uh, other people's feelings. They do things that are inappropriate. And ultimately, they can have uh, so much difficulty that uh, they may be uh, making sexually inappropriate comments or advances. They often are, uh, are very oral and they want to put anything in their mouth, even if it's a non-edible object. Uh, diets can change into wanting to eat lots and lots of uh, sweets. And this disorder often uh, affects younger people. 
three-quarters of frontotemporal dementia is uh, younger than age 65. So this is something, if someone in their middle age is having trouble, that they should uh, think about. And then uh, lastly, I'll just mention briefly, I think you said it very well, that in vascular dementia, that's dementia due to strokes. And um, uh, in a true vascular dementia, typically uh, the family knows it, everybody knows it, because they've experienced their loved one having stroke after stroke after stroke after stroke. And the ways to try to reduce strokes include, you know, seeing their doctor, making sure all their risk factors can be adjusted, including uh, blood pressure and cholesterol. And the other thing that actually we, we haven't touched on before, that the Mediterranean diet can be helpful for both uh, vascular dementia as well as Alzheimer's disease. There's good evidence for the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, that's very important, folks, because there are things we can do because some people have mild cognitive uh, decline, which will never progress to dementia, but it could. So having an organic diet is very important, like the Mediterranean diet. Anyway, we are coming toward the end of the session, so I want to thank you, Dr. Butson. Again, his uh, website is www.andrew.com. Butson, B-U-D-S-O-N-M-D.com. So I want you to all go out and investigate, learn about various topic, these topics so you can help yourselves, help others, work with your physician and clinicians, and above all, be well. Are you looking for a great movie to watch? Tired of swiping through hundreds of different channels hoping to see something that sparks your interest? Well, I have great news to share with you. Today, everyone has either cut the cord with their cable company or are thinking about it. I cut the cord more than five years ago, and I don't miss cable one bit. There are now so many money-saving options to cable TV. My favorite right now is Roku. There are literally thousands of wonderful channels for every type of viewing experience you can possibly imagine. But today, I wanted to tell you about two very special channels, Indie Rights Movies and Indie Rights Free Movies. You will find both of these channels in the Movies and TV section of the Channel Store on Roku. All the movies on the Indie Rights Free Movies channel are absolutely free for you to watch. You can browse through hundreds of movies organized in interesting groups. You can scan through quickly like top-rated films from Rotten Tomatoes, monster horror, country drama, dark comedies, crime docs, films directed by women, and social issue docs. You won't find categories like these on other popular streaming channels. Speaking of social issue docs, you might watch The Big Secret. The Big Secret is the latest work by Emmy Award-winning producer Alex Foss, directed by integrative physician Susan Downs. It's all about the influence big money has on your health and well-being. If you prefer to watch movies without ads, subscribe to Indie Rights Movies, available everywhere. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Better.